sixth grade or higher, there is uh, a group meeting out there now. It looks like most of them have already left, but Deja, if you want to go, I think they're meeting out there in the former first grade room, okay? Um, welcome to Parkview East, and just real quick, it's going to pain me for the next 30 minutes or so if the best seat in the house is not being sat in, okay? So let me just go ahead and put it to work real quick. I promised this beautiful woman over here last week that she was going to be the first to sit. So there we go. You can sit right there. All right. Craig, you can scoot over and sit closer too if you want. You don't have to. Come on. All right, so welcome to Parkview. Uh, my name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you. Over the next couple of weeks, what we are doing is casting a vision for who we are as a people. In order to know what we are going to be doing, we first have to kind of know what our job is. And as a church, Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations, right? And so as a church, that is what we are called to do in our community and across the globe is to make disciples, right? To make folks who will pursue Jesus in everyday life. So the question is, how do we do that? Last week, we raised a banner here for what Sunday mornings look like. The structure that we are going to put in place as a church that will allow us to help make disciples in our community are three G's. Gather, grow, and go. Last week, we raised a banner for what it looks like for us to gather on Sunday mornings as a people. And my hope is that as you walk in these doors, you do so this morning with an expectation to encounter the living God. When we meet on Sunday mornings, we meet primarily to worship the living and eternal God. And when we do that, this beautiful thing we saw last week happens, we serve as an encouragement to one another. So as we sing songs and you hear the person next to you singing words that reflect the gospel reality, what happens is your faith is encouraged. So as you walk in to church on Sunday mornings, my hope is, like I said last week, that this would be a priority for you to meet together weekly, that it would be something we saw in Hebrews 10 that we do not neglect, right? But it would be the first thing that would be put in our weekly calendar as we consider what lies before us, Sunday morning worship, that we do not neglect it, right? This week, we are turning our attention to what does it mean to grow. One of the things I love about this church is that so many of you, when we started East Campus, were drawn to what we are doing as a church because it's an opportunity to reach the community with the gospel, right? It's an opportunity to let the, the God see God's kingdom build right here on the east side of Iowa City. And so many of you were drawn to that mission, drawn to that mission. And I applaud that and I'm so encouraged. I love that. Okay, But this morning our focus is going to be not just on how do we take the gospel and allow it to expand from us, but how do we take the gospel and let it sink deep in us so that we might grow in Christ-likeness, right? We don't want to serve and serve the Lord on mission at expense of our own faith. You will simply, it simply won't work, right? We want to be a, a, a people who are committed not just to gathering together to proclaim his excellencies, but also to feast on his word for nourishment of our soul, that we would be a people who want to grow, okay? So this morning, if you have your Bibles, and I sure hope you do, I would invite you to open them up to the book of Colossians. We are in the book of Colossians, 
You can turn to chapter 3. I'm still deciding how many verses I'm going to read. And I think I'm just going to read a half of a verse. Okay? A half of a verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5a. Verse 5a. Okay? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's a verse that you guys can commit to memory right now. Well, a portion of a verse that you could commit to memory right now. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let me pray and we'll dive right in. Father God, thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We believe this word is true. We know it to be eternal, Lord, and our prayer is simple. That you would take this eternal truth, that you would write it on our hearts, Father. And that you would use your voice, your word right now to conform us the image of your son. Lord, I pray that it would be clear, Lord, what you would have for us this morning and how we can be challenged in it. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, my family and I took a road trip out west and I've got just two quick stories from that that I'll probably share this morning just as illustrations. The first is um, one of the parks that we went to um, was Yosemite. So Yosemite in Northern California, it's a beautiful, beautiful park, never been to it, and uh, didn't really know much about it, didn't know much about it, so we kind of Googled a little before, what are some of the things to see there? If you've ever been, or even ever been to kind of the Bay Area, Yosemite, um, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful park, right? These massive trees, huge granite rocks, so many wonderful things to say, to see. You really, we just spent a day there and just scratched the surface of what um, God had cre- is, is just beautiful creation that is y- Yosemite Park. One of the things that I wanted to do was to find, um, you know, with little kids, we could kind of only explore things that were close by. And so just what are some of the waterfalls that are there that are beautiful? Well, we found one. It's called Bridal Veil Falls. And I think there's a picture of it there. It's not the greatest resolution, and it's not one that I took, all right? But it's one that I found online. Google it if you want. Bridal Veil Falls, beautiful. What's, what made this such a, a wonderful thing was it was a real short hike, to get to in just a few minutes with little kids, that was important. So we got there, and, and as beautiful and glorious as that looks like, you would think, oh, it's, what, what it really looks like is, next picture, is that, full of people, all right? Just constantly, just everywhere you go, it's just crowded with people. You'll notice at the end of kind of the falls, there's these big, huge rocks, right? And so what is the activity that is, is, is as people get there, you, you, you want to get as close as you can to the action. So you find yourself climbing one rock after another. The trick with these rocks, though, is that they are incredibly slippery. They don't even look wet, right? But if you step on them, your foot will slide. So the whole time you're walking, you're bracing yourself with other people. You can make that picture go away. While I was taking my children up there, the boys who are a little more adventurous, they, they went on ahead just a little bit, kind of gave them a limit. You can't go past that rock, right? So they, they got up there, got as close as they could. And with Liana, we got a little close. We didn't get quite as close as they did, but we found a spot that was kind of the water was pooling and she was kind of playing in the water. And while I stood there keeping an eye on the boys and an, an eye on her, I, I happened to notice out of the corner of my eye a gentleman who was in the process of following up where everybody else was going. He was standing 
on a rock. While he was standing there, he, was, he, he began to realize that in order for him to get where he was to where he wanted to be, he had to go from, from one rock to the next. However, the distance between those two rocks was one that you could tell. Now, I was watching. I was kind of just watching outside of my eye because it was, it was kind of funny as he stood there, like just building up the courage to jump to the next rock. Right, and he's kind of hesitated, and you know, and he just every now and then he look around to see if anybody else is watching. When he'd look my way, I'd quick look back down, <laughs> right, just to see like how like is he actually gonna make the jump? The dude stood, stood there for at least, and I'm not even exaggerating, at least five minutes, like building up the courage. And every now and then he'd check his phone and he'd go back and he'd you know he just wasn't confident in his ability to 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 get over that that streaming that stream of water. And not just totally embarrass himself, right? It was funny. It was funny at the time, right? So after a few minutes, he, he eventually, his partner, his girlfriend, whoever it was, was actually ahead of him, came back, jumped over it, saw him, and they just, you know, just, he just gave up and walked back down the hill, right? So he didn't even, didn't even do it. And I, I share that story because it serves as a, as a pretty good illustration of how we oftentimes approach spiritual growth, Right? That oftentimes we can consider where we are. We know where we are right now, right? We know, you know spiritually where you are presently, right? And odds are you have in your head an idea of where you ought to be, where you want to be, right? And oftentimes as you consider the gap between where you are and where you want to be, it can leave you feeling kind of like that guy on the rock. Like in order to get from here to there, it seems like an impossibility. It seems daunting. It is frustrating. You feel discouraged, maybe in your lack of ability to grow spiritually. And oftentimes it can leave us so discouraged that we hang our head in shame and walk away. I don't know if that describes you as you consider growing spiritually. Growing spiritually. I'm sure all of us can relate in some way or another. This morning's text is really good news for us. Because it tells us a remarkable truth. That no matter where you are right now, this morning, growth is possible. You can grow. You can grow. Not just does it tell us that you can grow, but it shows us how to grow. How to grow. Every one of us deals on a regular basis with sin. As we consider our life and the growth we want to see, how does a sinner grow? How does a sinner grow? Our text tells us this morning very clearly. This morning I want to point out just three things, three observations. The first is that there is an activity that is necessary for your growth. Anybody who starts off a year... Okay, maybe some of your parents are in the mode right now of the beginning of a school year is kind of a new opportunity to a fresh start. And odds are you're thinking about how you want the year to look. At the end of the year, what, what do you want it to look like? What are some goals, maybe? And maybe you would throw out some goals personally or professionally, but you also have to not just throw out goals. Goals are good. You have to have a vision of where you want to be. 
But those goals are no good if you don't think through steps that are necessary to get you there. This morning's text is helpful because it gives us a plan for our growth. There is an activity that is necessary. Now, when you think about spiritual growth, odds are, if you think about maybe just in your mind, picture spiritually how you want to grow. What do you want to look like, let's say, in a year? How do you spiritually want to mature? And then if you were to think through how do you get there, odds are many of us are going to go right away to maybe some disciplines, a plan that will get us there. And that plan may look something like early mornings, solitude, Bibles open, dark coffee in a mug, all right? Maybe that's involved, a journal and a pen, right? Maybe that's the activity that you are thinking of. It's necessary to get where you are to where you want to be. Maybe it's a long walk. Maybe worship music playing, a prayer on your heart, silence, you, nature, God. Maybe that's the activity. Or maybe the activity looks more like serving or giving or sharing with those around you. Those are all really good activities, all right? Those are all things that we should be thinking about as we think about our own spiritual growth. But they're not the activity that's mentioned in our text this morning. They're not. They're all valuable and necessary disciplines. However, it is not the activity that Paul exhorts the church of Colossae to in chapter 3. Rather, at least in chapter 3, 5a. Rather, the activity is that of killing sin. Killing sin. Paul's exhortation to the church of Colossae for their growth looks less like a carefully staged Instagram post and more like a violent confrontation full of carnage. All right? For your growth. Don't think solitude. Think slaughter. Paul's pastoral prescription for our spiritual progress is the pronouncement of war. That's the activity he exhorts the church to. Killing, this is the first principle for today. The killing of sin is essential for the growth of Christians. As you consider how to get over that flowing stream and not walk away discouraged and frustrated and ready to quit, you have to regularly practice the killing of your sin. To this point in his letter to the church of Colossae, Paul has established the supremacy of Christ in all things. He has also established the means by which we achieve, we, we receive salvation in Christ. In chapter 3, he shifts his attention from these big theological concepts to incredible implications that come from the truths he's established. What's wonderful about 
Colossians chapter 3. This is one of my texts that I use usually when I do officiate a wedding. I usually find myself in Colossians chapter 3. Because it gives us wonderful daily implications of the gospel. It is amazingly practical. A number of years ago, there was an individual, a friend of mine, who, who was feeling frustrated in his spiritual walk. What, what, so he wanted to go out for coffee. We met over um, at, at a place to grab some coffee, and it was late at night, and he was beginning to open up and share with me why he was so frustrated in his spiritual journey. And, and all of it boiled down to his frustration with nagging, persistent sin that would not leave him alone. And his question to me was simply, what do I do with this sin? What do I do with the sin that is evident in my life? I see moments of victory, but yet its presence remains. He identified what every one of us can relate to in some way, shape, or form. Every one of us in our pursuit for Christian maturity has to know how do we deal with sin. Paul's prescription is simply kill it. Put it to death. Look at verse 6. Well, sorry. Yeah, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Kill it. Destroy it. Disrupt it. The peace, wage war in a take-no-prisoners kind of way. Why is the killing of sin so necessary, so essential for our spiritual progress? Well, a couple of reasons. First, you'll notice the word therefore, which is a really helpful word in understanding the author's intention. Therefore is referring to what is before in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 1 through 3, Paul establishes a really helpful Concept. His concept that he has established is see it in verse 3a for you have died. For you have died. This is how Paul talks about our salvation, what has happened to us. We have died. He puts it this way in Romans 6 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As we have received this grace and mercy from our Savior, should we continue to walk in sin? It says, by no means, in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's understanding of what has happened to us spiritually is that there is death that has taken place in us. As we surrender our lives to Jesus and receive the grace and mercy he extends to us by the saving work he accomplished through his death and resurrection, we become dead to sin. So therefore, if you are dead, therefore you need to put to death what is earthly in you, the sin that exists. Because you are dead, kill it. The old self, he says, is gone. You are a new creation. You have been born again. Other re reason we see in verses 1 through 3 that we should be putting sin to death is because our focus in life has been radically altered. He tells us in verses 1 through, th through 4 that we are to seek 
things that are above where Christ is. He says this twice. Our mindset has been redirected. We should be eager to make sure our affections are in line with our focus, which is above. Not driven by or given to that which is below. He lists off several sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is, adult, uh, which is idolatry. Really, if you were to look at these words, they all have to do with the first one, sexual immorality, right? The, the word uh, passion really could be translated lust, okay? Evil desires, they all have to do with an appetite that we have that is earthly in us to constantly want more, to not be satisfied. These are earthly vices, they're an appetite, an inappropriate desire for more. A desire so strong for more that it consumes your thoughts on a daily basis. Desires that are so valued, they are fed so much that the place that they occupy in your life is actually higher than God. They can be classified as idolatry. These, what's also interesting about the first list of vices he mentions in verse 5 is that these are oftentimes hidden sins, right? They, they are sins that are known maybe primarily and only exclusively to you. you. You oftentimes don't see them outside, right? These are ones that are hidden deep inside you. And he says, put them to death. He lists another list in verse 8 through 9. I'll read that real quick. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If you will notice, these are completely opposite. These are ones that are visible, that people can hear, right? So essentially every sin, that which is inside of you that no one can see and that's what comes out of you because of what's inside of you that everybody can see and hear. Put it to death. Put it to death. You know, the Greek philosophers of the day would have rejected immorality, right? What is earthly in us. They would have taken issue with what Paul says here. They would have taken issue with it because their, their interest was primarily due to their fascination with a life well lived. They wanted, the Greek philosophers wanted us to live a virtuous life. And this idea, this concept of a virtuous life was motivation enough for us to be straining towards it. Paul wants you to live, Jesus wants you to live a good life. He wants you to live a holy life. Be holy as I am holy. He wants you to pursue a virtuous life. But that's not the only reason why he wants you to kill sin in your life. Okay? Not just for the sake, for the possibility of a good, virtuous life. Rather, he says, put these things to death. Why? He says it in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, put it to death. Take this presence of sin in your life seriously. Deal with it seriously because God deals with the sin in your life seriously. It's no small thing what happened on Calvary, right? He's demonstrated not just his love for us with the cross, but how serious he takes your sin. Even the ones that you may think is not a big deal. Covetousness. Seriously? A big deal? Kill it daily? 
He says, yes. Why? Because it's because of that covetousness, your desire for more and more and more, no matter what it is, inability to be content in life with who you are and what God has given you, God's wrath comes upon it. Take sin seriously. Wage war against sin in your life. Put it to death. Because if you don't, it will kill you. Take it seriously because it is tremendously dangerous. If you think about what we want to see God accomplish through our church, if we don't take our own personal sin seriously, I guarantee you what we want to see happen won't. If we are not committed to being followers of Jesus who want to be renewed daily and, and pursued so that we look like him in his image and we're not committed to killing sin on a regular basis, folks, we will just look like everybody else around us, right? And we will not see any, we, I mean, we might, I don't know, get more people here, but we certainly won't be making disciples, right? Which is what we're setting out to do. Take sin seriously. J.I. Packer tells a uh, tells a, one of his books, he tells a story about a comic I think he saw years ago where there's a man sitting in an armchair who had a shaggy dog that possessed to him, that he possessed. And uh, the dog slipped out and moments later a lion slipped into his place and sat down right where the shaggy dog was sitting. The man did not notice the lion, right? And he began to reach down by the, arm, the armchair and began to pet the lion, running his hands through the mane of the lion. Not realizing, shall we say, that he had a problem. <laughs> right? He was interested in petting the beast, taming the beast, enjoying the company of the beast. Not recognizing that at any given moment, the beast, all he had to do was open his mouth and the man would be no more. Folks, sin works in our life in a very, very similar way. We don't want to treat sin as if it is our friend. Folks, it exists to kill you. And if you don't make it a regular habit to kill it, you will die. Okay? How do you kill sin? I'll just give you three practical things real quick. How do you do this? The first thing is you learn to hate your sin. Learn to hate your sin. The gospel frees us from guilt of our sin, but it also aggravates our conscience. John Owen, who did a wonderful work on the mortification, kind of the fancy theological term for how we deal with sin, how we kill it, says this, bring your lust to the gospel, not for relief, but for further conviction of its guilt. Every sin should be held up next to the cross, no matter how small you think it is. And as we see it next to our Savior, bloody and dying, we should grieve its presence in our life. We should learn to hate its stench, despise its existence. Nagging sins can survive if they remain but a nuisance in your life. A pesky 
persistent acquaintance. Folks, learn to hate your sin. Also, you have to starve your sin. When we went out west into the Badlands, maybe you guys have been there right before you kind of get into the park, there is a place where you can, you can pet prairie dogs. Is that what they are, prairie dogs, Dan? Yeah, prairie dogs, yeah. Prairie dogs. It's pretty amazing, little holes in the ground, and these creatures, at first we were just driving by, and there's a big sign that said, said prairie dogs. So, oh, cute little prairie dogs. But then all of a sudden you look around, they're everywhere, right? And there's a little place you can buy some peanuts. I guess prairie dogs like peanuts. I don't know. So we stopped and got some peanuts. And uh, it was a very simple process. You give a prairie dog a peanut, and he wants another one, okay? He continues to come around. The more you feed them, the more they come around you. Sin works in a very similar way. Only instead of receiving cute little smiles and affection like you would from a prairie dog, the result is your death. The more you feed it, the more it comes around. The more you indulge in it, the greater its grip is over you. The less we feed it, the weaker it becomes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Folks, what we do with our sin is not feed it like you would with the prairie dog. You grab it by its neck, you take it out back, and you put it to death with a shovel. You understand what I'm saying? Not the prairie dog. Prairie dog's cute. Your sin, okay? I'm not advocating animal cruelty here, okay? I'm, I, I'm looking for you to tr deal violently with your sin. You put that bad boy to death, all right? Put him down. Okay, thirdly, how do you... Wage war against your sin. You hate it. Learn to hate it. You learn to starve it. I can't remember what I put on the slides. So you might have to tell me. And you are... You remind it... <laughs> sorry. You remind it of its position and power in your life. All right? You remind it. You don't just remind your sin. You also remind yourself that your sin ultimately is a loser. Our struggle with sin can often leave us feeling overwhelmed, crushed, and defeated. That is not the work of the Spirit. That is a tactic of the enemy. Even in the midst of our frustration with ourselves, God has not given up on us. This is the good news of the gospel. He is still there. Like the prodigal's loving father calling you back home to a lifestyle of obedience and joy. God has pardoned our sin where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Your sins have been dealt with on the cross. However powerful and persistent that little nagging sin seems in your life, the power that you have through the Spirit of Christ is greater. It is stronger. It has the ability to overwhelm that sin so that as you seek to kill it and destroy it, its life can be sucked out of it. To be overcome by evil, you are called to overcome evil with good. John Owen says, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for the sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Folks, the good news is that he doesn't charge us to do something we have no power to do. Rather, he has given us his spirit. 
The same spirit which he says we can do greater things, right? It's better for, Jesus told his disciples, it's better that he leaves here. Because when he leaves here, his spirit lives on in us. And we can do greater things when we put his spirit to work, the spirit that exists in us. So it's real important that we remember this activity that he has called us to do, the killing of sin. It is the activity, but it's only successful if we first understand our identity, who we are in Christ. Growth is possible because of who you are. Like I said before, killing sin is an essential part of living the Christian life, but it is not the essence of what it means to be Christian. You should learn to hate your sin, starve your sin, remind your sin of what it can and can't do to you, right? And what has been done to it. But that is not the reason why you can have victory over your sin. The reason you can have victory over your sin is because of who you are now. Because of what he has done. Our activity flows from our identity. It's not the other way around. If you put it the other way around, we become righteous because we kill sin... If you put it that way, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is because of who you are, because of your identity, you can kill your sin. You can become righteous. Christ calls you that. The reason we have this ability is, is because God says that we are in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite terms. Paul doesn't use the word Christian. When he describes who we are as followers of Jesus, the most common phrase that he uses is this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, this little phrase can easily just be read over and yet it is completely profound. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, you are in Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, we had better know. We had better know. We are in Christ and Christ, the Bible says, to make it all the more confusing, is in you. All right? This is a fancy term the theologians use for this. is called union with Christ. Union with Christ is the core of, it's the essence of who we are as Christians. It means that we are represented by Christ. Think of a sports team, right? Maybe a basketball game. Last second shot, the point guard shoots a bucket, right? And everybody on that team, he shoots a game-winning bucket. His arms go up in victory. Well, everybody else, the players on the court that are on his team wearing his uniform, the people sitting on the bench wearing his uniform, even the fans watching on TV in the stands, maybe sitting on their sofa, can all together throw their hands up and collectively say, we won. We won. It's why when the Cubs won the World Series, I was sitting on your futon, but I can say, we won. We won. I had no participation in the victory. Yet I, I shared in the spoils of the triumph. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, Christ, Christ now represents us. We share in his triumph. Right? In the same way we have placed our faith in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Christ represents you. You've been united with him and all that he has done. That's why we can say we have been crucified with him. We have been buried with him. We have raised with him. He says in Ephesians 2, 6, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Folks, when you are in Christ, you are represented by Christ. But it also means we are hidden in him. 
We see this in Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We are completely safe. We are hidden in him. He represents us before the Father. He covers our sin, our shame, our imperfections. He, he becomes not just our cover, but he becomes himself our identity. As we navigate this world, we do so with all of his blessings and all of his benefits. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. No need to craft or discover, manufacture some identity. Rather, he has called us his chosen, beloved sons and daughters. He, he doesn't just represent and love some future version. And this is so critical for us to understand. When you're thinking about your own spiritual growth, Jesus didn't just die on the cross for your future self. As you're thinking about where you want to be spiritually, as you want to grow to maturity, and you get this image of what maturity looks like, of who you are going to be one day, he didn't just die for that future version of you, right? He, he died for you right now. He, he loves you right now. We don't have to pursue growth spiritually to receive his love and favor. Folks, he loves the version of you that's sitting in the chairs right now. Let that sink in. The sin that as we're talking about killing sin and you're thinking of the sin that has persistently bogged you down. Jesus died for that sin. He, he died for you knowing that right now you're going to be struggling with it. He, he loves you right now. This, the response should be, it should propel us to want to grow, right? As we understand his grace and mercy more and more. Like I said, union with Christ means that Christ, that Christ, we are in Christ, but also means that Christ is in us. Galatians 2.20 is super helpful for this one. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just that we are in Christ. He is in us. His spirit is in us. You know, think of the followers of Buddha. They believe Buddha lives on through his teachings. Folks, we don't believe that Jesus lives on because of his example, which was wonderful, or because of his teachings, which were fantastic. We believe Jesus lives on because his spirit dwells in us. Dwells in us. And every single one of us. Apart from this, we don't stand a chance at growing spiritually. We don't stand a chance at becoming more and more like him, right? He has given us the resources that we need to overcome sin in our life. Last thing I want to point out just real quick is the, there's the, the activity that's necessary for spiritual growth. There's the identity that's necessary for spiritual growth. Lastly is the community that's necessary for spiritual growth. In verse 11... We've looked at this verse many times. It says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The word here is one that many times I've circled that word here. Where is here? Right? Paul tells us of the cosmic implications and realities of who Jesus is the first couple of chapters of what he has done for us. And as he turns his attention into the implications of practical daily living as followers of Jesus, he says, here there is 
No Greek, no Jew. There's no distinctions, right, between these sort of national cultural distinctions. Circumcised or uncircumcised, sort of religious distinctions have gone away. Barbarian and Scythian class or the educated versus the uneducated, those distinctions have vanished. Slave and free, and free the economic or the social distinctions, here those distinctions don't exist. So the question is where is here? Well, in the same way he's given us new life, he's also created a new humanity. And we are called to live this human. We are called to be who we are, not individually in isolation, but rather corporately as a people. If you were to read on 12 through 17 of Colossians, and just focus on, on all of the, the ways he exhorts us to take off who we used to be, like die to those earthly desires and those, the things that are of the flesh, die to those and then put on a certain way. This is the way I want you to live. If you look at those, this the list of virtues ultimately, you will see the corporate realities of all of those. The way that we love one another, the way that we forgive one another. It is corporate in nature. It's because he has created a new humanity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in The Cost of Discipleship, the community of the saints is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women. If you are new and visiting this morning, I hate to disappoint you, but the people in this room, the people who call Parkview East home, are not perfect, right? We are not perfect. The thing that we, we don't share perfection in common, what we do share in common is our need for someone else who was perfect. Because all of us are in the regular habit of dropping the ball. Of jumping and falling in the stream. Every single one of us. What we share in common is the need for this gospel of forgiveness. Right? No, it is a community which proves that it is worthy of the gospel of forgiveness. I love that phrase. We, are, we prove regularly, if you spend more than an hour with me, you will know I have proven myself in desperate need of forgiveness. Right? That's what we share here as a people. Every single one of us is a, is a construction project. Right? That God is constantly working on. And as we come together as this new humanity, we don't just set our distinctions aside. We set expectations for one of us to be perfect aside, right? Because that's not going to happen. Jesus, that's why Jesus died. If any one of us had, did not need to be asking for forgiveness, it would devalue what Jesus did on the cross, right? It would take away from the power that he displayed on the cross, it's a community which proves that it's worthy of the gospel forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness. What we do on a Sunday morning when we gather is we proclaim and we celebrate that though we are not perfect, we have a Savior who was. And so that our sins could be removed for us so that we could be hidden in Christ, represented by Him. We proclaim that to one another. We celebrate that. Together. Folks, our hope at Parkview East is that we would build a culture where it is okay. I think there's a famous book by that. Okay to not be okay. Does that sound like a famous book? Maybe a psychology book back in the 70s or something like that? It's okay to not be okay because every single one of us, honestly, I hate to break it to you, you ain't okay. All right? Messed up. And if you came with somebody, maybe a visitor, maybe a spouse, I don't know, the more you know that person, the more you know how messed up they are. Right? <laughs> And the more we meet 
as a people in fellowship together and grow together, the same thing happens. We learn each other's imperfections, right? We need to grow as a people together. So how do we do that? Um, we have a couple of different ways that we do that here at East. Okay, just in closing, I want to call you to participate in this. Okay, because as we think of gathering together, growing together, and going together, it's possible that some of us lean towards just one of those things, right? I just want to come on Sunday mornings, and I'm glad that you do come on Sunday mornings. But what we feel like is that if that's the only way that you're connected, you're actually missing out and spiritually maybe not progressing like you could be, right? You're missing out not just for yourself, but you're also allowing your brothers and sisters not to benefit from your wisdom, from your maturity, right? From your fellowship, from your encouragement. And so we would, we would invite you to participate in all of these. So to grow, uh, we do that a few different ways here. One of the ways that we do it is through community groups. Jeremy mentioned, right there he is, that tonight is kind of the last of the summer. Community groups have been gathering together at 5.30 um, primarily. This will be the last time that we do that, all of the community groups together here. Um, after this, you'll go back into your individual community groups. If you're not in a group, I would really you know, just charge you to do that. Just even make way to come tonight, 5.30, and we'll put you in a group. All right, super flexible. You want to get in a group right now, I could probably do it right now. All right, but I'm not going to. All right, 5.30 tonight if you want to get into a community group. Um, those are the primary sort of mechanism by which we grow together, where we open up and share life, we open our homes, we open the Bible, we get in God's word. Okay, next thing we have is women's and men's ministry. Um, we want to provide several times throughout the year where men can kind of come together collectively, where they can open the Bible, they can open each other's lives, get into those things. Um, and so we have several events. You have a card. This week the welcome card is a little different on your bulletin. If you want to get connected in one of these things, what I want you to do, put your email and just check the box. I haven't even looked at the card, but I'm assuming there's a place for those things. Right? Yes. Okay, there's a box. Very good. So if you want to get connected in women's ministry, um, Stephanie, you want to just say quickly a plug for women's? Yeah. Very good. And there's also opportunities for men. So if you want to get connected, there's several groups that meet kind of in the mornings to read Bibles. And we'll have some other events that will happen, both men and women. So if you want more information on that, check the box. And you can put it in the blue card back there, okay? Um, we also have, like I said, community groups. If you want more information on that, check the box. Um, soul care, if you need biblical counseling, it's something that the church provides, okay? We also want to equip you guys to help provide some, some of that you guys could do as well. And so if you want more information on maybe receiving biblical counseling or even giving biblical counseling, I would invite you to check that soul care box. Again, put it in the back. And lastly is equipping. Um, we have different uh, things that happen here at 9 o'clock uh, on Sunday mornings. Not for the next couple of weeks, but I believe September 15th, Lynn, is that the right day? We're having a first steps class. So if you are new, if Christianity is new to you, if Parkview even is new to you, uh, we would encourage you to come 9 o'clock starting September 15th. If you want more information, check that box. Um, but it would also potentially lead into maybe membership class. So if you're not a member here, um, that would be another thing I would encourage you to explore as well. So our hope is that we provide lots of opportunities. Um, again, we're one church that meets in three different locations. Some of those are just exclusively here at East Campus, but then there's also times that we want to connect with Central Campus because they may have more resources that will help really just allow us to grow further. Okay, so my hope is this morning, 
Um, again, check those boxes, put in the blue box if you want more information on those things. Uh, my hope is this morning that you will see the necessity of taking the sin in your life seriously. That as you leave here, it's easy to just walk out this room and be like, okay, I didn't like that message or I liked it, whatever, and just move along. Rather, what I would like for you to do is, is leave this room and consider the sin that is in your life and how you can hate it, can starve it, and remind it who it is on a regular basis. Kill it, okay? You cannot do that if you are not confident with who you are in Jesus. That's why the gospel is so good for us to remember every day. It's why when we come and worship, our songs are filled with the gospel. The gospel is in every message. Um, we want to remind each other of the gospel, okay? Because it's the only hope that we have of any kind of victory in our life, okay? Why don't you guys go ahead and stand up. I will pray for us. And then I think we have a song to close. Father God, thank you so much just for the saints in this room, Lord, the brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for those who are visiting this morning. Um, Lord, more importantly, we thank you for just the good news of your gospel. Lord, that we are a people um, that you have called, that you have loved, Lord, and you have brought together. And I pray that as we just desire to put you on display for our community to see, Lord, I pray that you would also give us um, not just a vision for who we are to become personally, individually, Lord, but also how to get there. Lord, I just confess that, um, that I'm a sinner and I'm in desperate need of your grace and your mercy and all too often that sin can become just comfortable. Lord, and I pray that you would just allow your people this morning to um, just see this, the sin and the stench that it has and learn to despise it, Father, that we would cut it off and we would put it to death in our life. We love you. We thank you that you've given us the resources, the power, the ability to do just that. Lord, and we ask that as we leave, we would do so now in obedience. We ask these things in your name. Amen.